Boston University School of Law, recognized for excellence in legal education since 1872. It's the faculty. It's the students. It's the curriculum. It's the inspiration. Preparing students for the real-world practice of law today. Join host Dan Ray, BU Law alum and WBC 1030 radio host in Boston for this edition of the BU Law Podcast. And welcome into this edition of the Boston University Law School Podcast. I am your host, Dan Ray, and I uh, am an attorney here in Massachusetts, longtime attorney, longer than probably I want to admit, and, but also a longtime broadcast journalist at WBZ-TV in Boston, as well as WBZ Radio in Boston. I now host my uh, own nightly talk show Monday through Friday on WBZ Radio, which is 1030 in the AM dial, and uh, welcome you to listen to that. Many nights on that program, we deal with legal issues, and I also am a uh, proud graduate of Boston University School of Law. Joining me today is Dr. Uh, David Nesessian. Dr. Nesessian teaches human rights law as a visiting assistant professor of law at the Boston University School of Law, and in the spring, will teach um, prof- professional responsibility. He, too, is a graduate of Boston University Law School, as well as Boston University School of Management. For many years, David taught as an adjunct faculty member at BU Law and offered seminars in global professional responsibility, public international law, and international criminal law. David earned his PhD in law from Oxford University, where he also taught English criminal law. He worked as executive director of program on the legal profession at Harvard Law School and spent a year as a Supreme Court fellow at the U.S. Supreme Court. Dr. Nesessian writes and speaks extensively on human rights and genocide and in the fields of public international law and the legal profession. His book, Genocide and Political Groups, was published by Oxford University Press in August of this year, just August of 2010. And first of all, welcome to the program, David. How are you today? I'm very good. Thanks very much for having me, Dan. You're very welcome. Let's start off by dis- by defining genocide to our audience, uh, law students and legal professionals. Uh, uh, believe it or not, some might actually be unfamiliar with the details of that concept legally. Um, what co- what comes first uh, to mind? To my mind, at least, when we speak about you know a genocide, you think about Nazi Germany, you think about the Holocaust, the uh, systematic murder, elimination of some six million um, people who were Jewish. Um, I, I assume that's the 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 concept that springs to mind first and foremost for everyone. But there certainly have been other genocides around the world. Yes, I, I think that's right. I mean, the, the genocide, genocide is, as a crime, as a matter of international criminal law, if you look at, um, you know, a legal textbook or a legal statute, the crime itself is um, defined as a, a narrow uh, set of acts, um, serious violence, you know, killing, sterilization, um, serious bodily or mental injury, kidnapping of children, that sort of thing, that are um, perpetrated against members of a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group with the specific intent to destroy the group as such, meaning in its, uh, the group in its capacity as a group. Um, the offense itself is really focused on the physical and biological destruction of the group, and the, the violence against individual group members really is, is seen as a, a means to an end of destroying the larger group to which they belong. Um, and the Holocaust certainly is the paradigmatic example of genocide in the 20th century. It's, it's exactly what all of the drafters of the convention, the folks who came up with the definition I just 
described really had very firmly in mind in the mid to late 1940s when they were trying to come up with a treaty on the offense. Um, that 1948 uh, treaty, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, defined genocide under international law, but um, did not include political groups, uh, as I understand it. Am I correct on that? That's, that's exactly right. I mean, it almost did. There actually were, in order to get to the final version of the convention, 1948, you had three separate drafting committees and three separate drafts, working drafts of the convention. And political groups were covered in the first two um, drafts and made it almost to the very end of the drafting process of the final version, what ultimately became the convention, but were deleted really as part of a last-minute compromise um, in order to get the uh, the Soviet bloc to go along. Because the, what would constitute political genocide really would have, um, in, in the same way that the you know the, the focus of genocide on uh, religious and ethnic groups would have, you know, put put Nazi Germany squarely in the crosshairs. Having political groups in there really would put what the Soviet Union had done squarely in the crosshairs, and the Soviets weren't going to go along with that. So, um, as as in many things in international law, the people who were coming up with the treaty focused on what they could accomplish then and there. Uh, they took half a loaf, and they, um, you know, in order to get something done, and they deleted political groups in the convention. And that's what left us with the definition that we have today. Sure. Now, um, when we think of genocide, even in today's uh, context, uh, you think of some of the things that have gone on uh, in Darfur, uh, in the Balkans, um, with the uh, Hutus and the, the Tutsis uh, in, in Africa. So there are, you know, there's genocides which are on massive scale, and then there are genocides which are on less massive scales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, scale is not necessarily the deciding factor. Really, what, what in order to, for, from the legal perspective, I mean, you're, you're right in the sense that as a practical matter, most of the genocides, when we sort of think of the concept, really were examples of mass atrocity. Um, but the offense itself is actually defined very narrowly, and you don't need to have that kind of scale. What really matters is whether the victim was a member of uh, one of the covered groups, and um, whether there was the intent to destroy that group as such. Now, now you refer to political genocide, coming back to the concept that you have an interest in, uh, a bloody reality of contemporary life in your book. Um, can you just give some examples of what uh, would be considered political genocide and uh, and might not be covered by the, the 1948 uh, Convention uh, on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide, but uh, but is still, in your mind, uh, is 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 horrific uh, nonetheless. Sure, um, I think you know certainly as I, as I mentioned, um, you know the Soviet Union, um, you know Stalin's various purges, you know up to you know twenty million killed. Um, there was, for example, in in 1937, a secret order, um, double called Double O Four Four Seven, which defined you know enemies of the state for a particular purge. Um, it set out quotas for the number of people that had to be deported and the numbers that were going to be shot. Um, you know, you see similar kinds of things operating in uh, Mao's killings during the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution. Uh, most recently, the most recent example of political, of sort of pure political genocide, would be the killing fields in Cambodia. Um, you had um, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. It basically decimated about 25% of the Cambodian population, about 2 million people in a very, very short period of time. And we also had um, 
recently Saddam Hussein um, uh, using biological weapons um, on the Kurds in, in north in northern Iraq. Yes, yeah, and 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 in his trial, I think genocide was certainly. I don't remember if he was specifically convicted of this charge. I know that there were there were genocide charges being prosecuted by the Iraqi High Tribunal. Um, that you could say is is more of a traditional example of genocide, which although it might have had political underpinnings, right? There could have been, um, uh, you know, a sort of political the reason of political the, the motive of political domination. The group itself was an ethnic group, right? Ethnic Kurds within Iraq. In 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 your book, which we alluded to earlier and has just been published, Genocide and Political Groups, uh, you asked the question, which is basically, why should political groups be excluded from the legal definition of genocide? Which um, why why can't it be? I guess your question is, why can it not be broadened? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, the the, the example that I opened the book with is that. Um, Imagine Rwanda in, in, in 1994, right? You have two men who are lying dead on the floor of uh, Mugua Church. And these two men were killed at the same time, in the same way, by the same people, for exactly the same reason, right? To create a Tutsi-free Rwanda. And one of them is, a, is uh, an ethnic Hutu, the other one's an ethnic Tutsi. And we will say that under the existing state of law, one is a victim of genocide and one is not, right? One's a victim of, of the real um, kind of apex of, of human evil as far as criminal offenses are defined, and the other one is the victim of some other crime. Now, it could be a serious crime, war crime, crime against humanity, that sort of thing, but it's still not genocide. And the question I'm really aiming to answer through the book is, does that make sense? Because normally in, in the law, we want to treat uh, similar things in a similar way. And the question that I'm really trying to answer through the book is whether political groups are sufficiently similar to the other categories of protected groups that they really ought to be um, protected and dealt with in the same way. And the conclusion that I come to is that, that they are. Um, I think, you know, we have a sense that, um, I underline the conventions, a sense that it's somehow worse to do bad things to people because of their race or their religion, that sort of thing, right? The, the, the concept of the immutable characteristic you see in uh, American constitutional jurisprudence, right? That it's worse to do something on the basis of something that no one can really do anything about. You know, you can't really change your Well, we have, we have hate crime legislation in this country. So if uh, one, if two people are murdered and, and one person, an element of the, uh, of the murder in, includes antagonism toward their sexual preference or their race, uh, uh, the, the, the murder is, uh, is, is, is worse, uh, or conceptually right. at least. You still have a, two dead people, but uh, one of the uh, crimes uh, becomes, in addition to murder, it also becomes a hate crime. And uh, right. that's, that's a distinction we make. Now, if the international community actually did, as you suggest, or as you're suggesting, create a separate international crime to address political genocide, which makes a lot of sense to me, by the way, um, who would actually change the legal definition? And then, of course, how Ultimate, the ultimate question is, how would something like this be enforced? Well, I think that you have, um, it, it, there's always a question of political will that's involved. Um, and, and frankly, the question of political genocide is something that the international community has just has staunchly avoided even debating. If you look, for example, at the, the drafting records of the International Criminal Court, they really just decided to take it completely off the table and not even talk about it. 
Um, but it, you know, it's one of those things where ignoring the problem doesn't really make it go away. And it's something that a number of states are already um, doing. Um, one of the things I did for the book is I reviewed all of the uh, domestic legislation on genocide that I could find, and I managed to locate the laws of about 84 different states on genocide. And what I discovered is that about a quarter of them, about 20 states, have um, domestic legislation that would include political groups, that would cover political groups. Um, so that kind of demonstrates it's that the workability of the concept. And I think that the underlying justification is that when it comes to genocide, um, you're not defining the group, you're not for all purposes in society, right? I mean, essentially, to, to, to paraphrase Kierkegaard, you know, the, the perpetrator of genocide defines the group, labels the group in order to destroy it. And in the same way that um, in Nazi Germany, for example, the Nazi party was the one who defined a Jew. And if you had three or more Jewish grandparents, you were on the train to Auschwitz. If you didn't, you had some lesser degree of sanction. Same thing in political genocide. You know, it's, it's Stalin and Mao who are defining whether someone is an enemy of the state, that sort of thing. We're going to take a quick break uh, just for a moment, and uh, we will be back with much more with Boston University Law School professor David Nersessian uh, right after this. Located in Boston and steeped in 138 years of rich tradition, BU Law is number one in teaching quality according to lighter law school rankings and number three in the nation for best professors according to Princeton Review. BU Law, admitting students regardless of race, religion, or gender since 1872 and training them to become leaders in the law. Visit the website and see for yourself at www.bu.edu forward slash law. Now back to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray, a lawyer, a veteran Boston broadcast journalist at BU Law Alum. And welcome back to this um, Boston University Law School podcast. I'm Dan Ray, and my guest today is law school professor David Nersessian from the Boston University School of Law. And we're talking about the legal uh, aspect and legal concept of political genocide. It's the topic of David's new book, Genocide and Political Groups, published uh, by Oxford University Press in uh, 2010, uh, August of, uh, of 2010. Um, professor Nersessian, uh, what about acts of terrorism? Um, would would efforts to eliminate terrorist groups um, be considered political genocide under uh, uh, under your concept? Um, I would I would say not. Um, if you think for if you if you look for example at um, a group a terrorist group like Al Qaeda, um, Al Qaeda is the, a terrorist group that's organized um, along a particular view of religious precepts, right? And no one would suggest, I don't think, that the military and law enforcement efforts to stop that group from committing terrorist acts is regular genocide, is genocide against a religious group. And I think the same would apply, the same situation would apply to, um, you know, organizations that are, you know, sort of struggling for some kind of political uh, separation or something like that, that it would be, it would be really no more problematic than the situation that we currently have with the existing law. 
Um, just a one one quick question here, and I don't know how this fits, and it's, it's really a question of curiosity that pops into my mind. Uh, I think right now the the highest profile case that's currently underway uh, at the Hague is probably the Slobodan Milosevic case. Um, that is that case still ongoing, and and does that come close to um, to well, what you were talking about? There was a case a few years back against Milosevic, and then they they prosecuted him. The case took a number of years, and then I think there were about twenty hours of testimony from concluding the case, and he died of wow. a heart attack. So okay. that was sort of regarded as one of the um, you know not necessarily a failure of international criminal justice, but sort of a you know kind of an open um, you know, un- unresolved issue sure, in that court. Sure, it becomes moot at that, at that um, point. But Radovan Karadzic is now before the court, and he was probably, arguably, he is the highest level serve leader who has been prosecuted since Milosevic, and that case is, is ongoing right now. And um, and it, it seems like they never end. I mean, you you see a news report, and then three months later, another news report. It's just the, the just the pace of justice uh, uh, often in the international court seems to to go at a snail's pace compared to what we are we're used to here in the United States. Um, let, let me go ahead. That's right. Oh no, go ahead. I was just, I was going to say I think that's I think that's right. Um, it certainly is not. Um, you, because what you're trying to do is, you're, if you look at the international criminal tribunals, for example, those were created as a way to respond to a particular situation. I mean, if you think about international criminal law in, in sort of the, the 10,000, you know, 10,000 foot view of it, what you've seen since the 1940s with Nuremberg is kind of a progressive development um, in international criminal law. You know, you had the tri- you had the war crimes tribunals at Nuremberg and there and, and other courts thereafter. Um, up until the 1990s, you had prosecutions really at the domestic level, right? So you had Eichmann prosecuted in Israel, you had Barbie in France, you had Tuvier in, in, in Canada. Um, but it was not until the atrocities in Rwanda and the former Yugoslavia that you had the international community moving back and focusing on this issue. And, and what you had is you had international criminal tribunals set up by the UN Security Council as a measure to restore international peace and security. What you have now is an international criminal court that both simultaneously is aiming to um, apply existing international criminal law and also to progressively develop. And that might change the, the dynamic that you were, were talking about before in terms of the length and, and that sort of thing. Um, there's a couple of other uh, issues that I want to get to that I know that you're interested in in our remaining time, and I want to change gears just a little bit. Um, you uh, have spoken extensively about human rights and the impact of globalization on the legal profession. Uh, can you uh, expound on that a little bit for us? Uh, sure. I mean, I've taught for, for a couple of years now at BU. I've taught a seminar on globalization of the legal profession. I'm not teaching it um, later on this year, but I'm going to incorporate elements of that seminar into my professional responsibility course. And really what I was, was trying to do is to focus on a number of different dimensions of legal practice, how the profession is regulated, the institutions that lawyers operate in, um, legal ethics, the proper role of lawyers, all of those, those kinds of questions, and look at them from a global perspective to say, in, in an increasingly globalizing world, how are things changing? And that really is the underlying theme of the course. I mean, I, I assign... Um, a really small book um, by a guy named Spencer Johnson called Who Moved My Cheese, which really is about how people respond to change. And that's kind of the underlying theme for the uh, the course, because that's, that is 
really what's happening in the profession right now. You have tremendous amounts of change. And to some extent, the, the paradigms that we have of law, that's something that is established at the local level, it's regulated by the local level, lawyers practice in a particular local jurisdiction, all of those, those things are real. Those questions really are being opened up. Um, and, you know, for me, this is, this is slightly more cheerful to think about than studying how people commit atrocities against one another. Well, I, I understand, this is a final question for today, that, uh, that your work includes studying the concept of corporate lawyers. Um, we think about, you know, uh, lawyers at different levels, but if we think about um, corporate lawyers whose legal work sometimes can be used to facilitate serious human rights violations abroad. You know, banking lawyers are arranging commercial financing for a foreign government that maybe uses slave labor to mine blood diamonds. Uh, yeah. You know, it, it really expands the, the concept of, uh, of, of regulation here. Uh, is, is this another book that, that perhaps we might look forward to, um, uh, to see from you in the not-too-distant future? Um, well, I think it, uh, I think it depends on how you define the not too distant future. I mean, the, the one I just, just finished up really, uh, if you, you count the time I spent doing the doctoral research, um, it really took 11 years to do. So I wow. think for the time being, I will, uh, be focusing <laughs> on some smaller projects that maybe ultimately down the line along this theme will be, will be connected into, um, into another book. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank you very much, uh, Dr. Nersessian. Uh, you're an author and a professor at Boston University School of Law, and of course, very proud of that institution. Appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Uh, and if, if listeners want to get some more information on you, uh, on the law school and on some of uh, today's topics, subjects you teach, how can they best get in touch with you? Um, I would say, right, just uh, if you if you look on the Law School View Law website, you'll find um, all of my contact details are there. And on uh, the Social Science Research Network, SSRN, there's a, um, a chapter of the book itself that sort of discusses some of the, the concepts of political groups and that sort of thing in more detail. It's available for free. And, of course, the, the book itself is available on Amazon and in bookstores and that sort of thing. Well, Professor Nassessian, thanks very much for being with us today. I also want to thank all of our listeners. Uh, you can find all of the editions of the Boston University Law School podcast uh, right here at the Legal Talk Network and the Boston University Law School website, as well as on iTunes. Uh, until next time, we have a chance to uh, uh, to talk. I hope all of you have a, a wonderful day. Thanks very much again, Dr. Nassessian. Thanks very much, Dan. Have a good one. Bye-bye now. You too. Bye-bye. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thanks for listening to the BU Law Podcast with host Dan Ray. Check out what else is happening on campus at bu.edu forward slash law.